One, two, two. Can you hear me? I don't know. Yes, yes, I'm good. Okay. Um, welcome to church. Uh, I'm going to pray and we'll get straight into it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather. We thank you that when we open up your words and we read Jesus' words, that this isn't just a record of something he said 2,000 years ago, that Jesus, you are speaking to us today. So help us hear that Where, wherever we are in our spiritual journey, whether we're still um, far away from you or seeking you and not quite there yet, or whether we've been Christians for a long time and are followers of you, we pray that this morning by your Holy Spirit, Jesus, you might speak to each one of us and challenge us as to your heart. Amen. I'm interested in if any of you here have actually met a celebrity. Have you actually met a celebrity? Not just like from a distance, you know but I've actually had a chance to even interact a little bit with a celebrity. Hands up if you've actually met a celebrity. Okay, Dorette has, Mikey, only a few people. Marshall has. I'm interested. Marshall, who did you meet? Peter Garrett. Peter Garrett. Right, okay, from uh, the Oils. Okay, uh, who did you meet, Mikey? Stella put your hand up. Stella meant her. You've met her, and she is the celebrity. Um, I wonder, uh, when you met your celebrity, how did they react? Um, well, in the 90s, and I was going back a while, uh, this is David Hasselhoff, otherwise known as the Hoff, okay? He was a big celebrity. Now, I know a lot of you are, like, too young to remember the Hoff, but he is, like, the Chris Hemsworth of the 90s, I guess. Um, okay, and he had a lot of fans, and I'm just going to read out the, uh, the, the, the record of what, what one of the fans, who was a kid back then, said when he met the Hoff. I once met David Hasselhoff at a beach when I was about seven or eight years old. I asked him for his autograph, and without skipping a beat or looking at me, he said, I'm playing with my children right now, beat it. I stood there not sure how to react or what to do. And then he looked at me and gave me this weird face like he had just smelled the most rotten thing that could ever billow into the nostrils of a human being, and he yelled, and this is censored, get lost, you little turd. I ran away scared. I hope your experience with meeting a celebrity wasn't quite as bad as that. Well, by Matthew chapter 10, where we're at, Jesus was actually a huge local celebrity. Everywhere Jesus went, he faced crowds who wouldn't let him out of their sight. And that's understandable, of course, given verse 35, the first verse we read, chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. You can understand why people loved him and people wanted to be around him. But here's the thing, though. That must have been so tiring for Jesus, yeah? Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus said that there were 204 cities and towns in that region, each with no fewer than 15,000 people. And here it says in verse 35, Jesus went to all of the towns and villages, so if he had just done two towns a day, it would have taken him four months without stopping. See, Jesus would have needed breaks too. But for him, the sheer amount of people meant that the only time that he could maybe have a break was to get away on a boat. But we saw back in chapter 8, going on the other side of the lake meant that they would just go around and meet him there. Another time, the crowds followed him and he had no escape. Now, anyone who's uh, spent significant amounts of time with people, if you're into, you know, counseling type jobs, people type jobs, 
uh, ministry even, listening to people, helping people, praying with people, you know the emotional toll that takes on you, right? I remember a pastor used to say that on Mondays, he would uh, call it Bread Truck Mondays. Why was it called Bread Truck Mondays? Because um, after a weekend of just being with people and a long week of ministry and preparation, and then a Sunday, the only thing he wanted to do on a Monday was to drive a bread truck for a job because there was immediate rewards. You could drive a bread truck. It smells good. People love you for selling bread and you don't really have to think because you're so tired. I kind of resonate with that sometimes on a Monday. So this is Jesus, constantly on the go, constantly surrounded by people, a huge local celebrity. Yet, have a look at how he reacted. Completely not like David Hasselhoff, right? And not like me, after a busy season of ministry. How did Jesus react? Well, Matthew 10 tells us that when he saw the crowds, he reacted in three ways. And so we're up to point number one. When he saw the crowds, number one, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, The word compassion there is something like gut-wrenched, okay? Gut-wrenched. You know that feeling in the pit of your stomach when you see, you know, those pictures of the, the victims of the war in Ukraine? Or sometimes you see children starving in, in famine in Africa, that's the feeling, that, that, that word compassion, that pit of your stomach, gut-wrenching feeling. See, the, when Jesus saw the crowds, the same ones who were making so many demands of him, who were sapping his energy, who barely gave him a break, how did he respond? He was gut-wrenched for them. And here's the reason why, because it says they were harassed, they were helpless, they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, you know that sheep are some of the dumbest and most pitiful animals, right? Without a shepherd, sheep are vulnerable to predators. Without a shepherd, they can't find food and safety. Without a shepherd, they get spooked by everything, even non-predators, right? If if a little kid runs after a sheep, the sheep is going to like run away, even though it's just a little kid. Now, of course, it's not just that sheep are dumb and pitiful. In the Old Testament, God's people are often pictured as sheep. And the leaders of God's people are their shepherds. And yet in places like Ezekiel, don't turn to it, but Ezekiel 34, God has a lot to say about the shepherds of Israel because they were worthless shepherds. They were selfish shepherds. They led the sheep astray. They abandoned them in times of trouble. And so when God comes to his world in Jesus, Jesus, God in human flesh, Jesus, the Messiah, he sees his own treasured people and they are abandoned. And they're misled, and they're helpless, and they're hopeless, and it wrenches his gut. It tears him up inside. It stirs him. It affects him. And this is a challenge to us, isn't it, friends? Because the world that you and I live in is still filled with crowds of people who are lost and helpless. This is not just first century Galilee, and this is not just third world countries or countries at war like Ukraine. Where you study, where you work, where you live, people are like this. But the question is, do we have eyes to see? And are we moved like Jesus was? I read about how a pastor was sharing his experience um, that after a really tough and draining time, he was pastoring a church in a really difficult area of Canada He went with his mentor who suggested, well, maybe they should just go out to a quiet, scenic lake, spend the day off together. So they went 
But when they get there, it's not quiet, okay? It turns out that a whole bunch of young people are taken over with music, with party, with craziness. And this tired pastor, he's annoyed. He looks at the youth. He's annoyed at the youth. He's annoyed at God. And he just yells out, oh, can't I just have a day off? His mentor, though, looks out at the youth and with a deep sigh says, Youth, what a mission field. You see, same circumstance, same situation, completely different reactions. How do you see the people around you? How do you see the people around you? Those that you go to school or uni with, those that you work with, those that you live amongst in your neighborhood. See, friends, we have a choice here. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have a choice. You can naturally see people in relation to you only. That's how we naturally do it, right? I see people in relation to me. Are they useful to me? Are they interesting to me? Are they related to me? I've got to love them because they're family, right? How do they measure up against me? Or are they just a burden to me? That's how I see them. Is that, is that how you naturally... I, I know I do. Or maybe the choice is this. See them instead in relation to God, yeah? To see people as Jesus saw them. Human beings created in the image of God who belong to Him. But like you and like me are dreadfully broken and fallen and looking for hope and meaning in all the wrong places. Do you see people in relation to yourself or to God? That's just the people around us. Gaze a bit further and let's talk about the world. You know that more than 5,000 people groups totaling about 1.5 billion people are currently classified as unreached or unengaged. If you don't know the terms, unreached means that that people group does not contain an indigenous community of evangelical Christians, either, i.e. there's not a church there or group of Christians there that have enough numbers and resources to share the good news of Jesus amongst them. That's uh, that's unreached. Unengaged means that no church or no organization is actively working amongst that people group to share the good news of Jesus. In other words, 1.5 billion people... 1... 1.5 billion people. Do you know how many that is? I can't even count to that number. Unreached, unengaged. And every single one of them, unless something happens, is going to be born, going to live, and going to die without ever hearing the good news of Jesus and the God who loves them and died for them. I mean, that is a tragedy, isn't it? So our first reaction... Jesus' first reaction, sorry, is compassion. Now, we hear that, of course, and the thing we want to do is, well, let's just get to it. Let's, let's do something. But look what Jesus does. Verse 37, his second reaction is this. Verse 37, he asked his disciples, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. You see, what do you do when you are gut-wrenched about people, right? It's no good just feeling that. It's no good just going even. Between feeling and going is actually the most powerful thing that you and I should be doing and can be doing, and it's praying, yeah? And the word there for pray is literally the word for beg, to plead, 
Ask with passion. You see, our abilities and our strategies to reach people, send missionaries, plant churches, alleviate poverty, that's not enough. We can't do this. This is God's work. It's a supernatural work. And so we got to get on our knees, which makes our first Tuesday of the month Unreached People Group's monthly prayer meeting, which is now back meeting in person last week um, and coming. That's really worth going to, isn't it? Right? I mean, look at the 1.5 billion unreached, unengaged people. Your first reaction should be, we need to pray. We need to pray. Well, Jesus then changes metaphors from animals to agriculture, from shepherding to harvesting. That's what he's talking about. The harvest is plentiful. Now, what's really surprising is if you read carefully, look what he's not calling on you to pray. He's not calling on prayer for the lost. You'd expect that, okay? There's so many lost people. God, I pray for the lost. No, he's not doing that, is he? He's actually praying for people to go to the lost. Did you notice that? The harvest is plentiful. It's the workers he's praying for. You see, he is assuming, and rightly so, that God is already in the business of saving the lost. And of course, we know that because God does not want anyone to perish, it says in 1 Timothy 2. He wants everyone to be saved. God is in the business of saving the lost. But God uses means. And God wants to use his people to gather other people. He wants to use his disciples to make more disciples. You know, when Jesus fed the 5,000, and we'll come to that in a few weeks' time, how did he get the bread into the hands of the 5,000? He actually uses his disciples. It's a, it's a really interesting and really important detail that he specifically wanted his disciples to take part in the distribution of this miraculous bread. And so that's why we need to pray, but not just pray for the 1.5 billion. We need to pray for God to mobilize his people, to provide the people, the workers for the harvest, to reach and engage them. So don't just pray for your high schools and universities and workplaces and neighborhoods. Pray for disciples of Jesus to stand up and be counted, to go into these places, to reach them. And so I wonder if you pray like this. Do you pray for this? Now, this kind of prayer is powerful, but it's also risky. Why risky? Well, because you can't pray for God to send more workers into the field without being, to, being willing to be a worker yourself, yeah? It's a risky prayer. It's so much easier to say, God, I just pray for them. Save them. But if you pray, God, send people to them, you can't pray it without being willing to go yourself. You know, I grew up in a church where it was easier to send money than send missionaries of their own. So they would always find missionaries from other churches, support them. But when it came to their own going for years and years, decades, actually, they were, why? Because this was a mainly Asian church. And you don't want your own kids to give up their careers as doctors, lawyers, and engineers and go on mission field. So we'll just send money. Thankfully, that's changed. Pastor David Platt said, when Jesus looked at the harassed and helpless multitudes, his concern was not that the lost would not come to God. Instead, his concern was that his followers would not go to the lost. 
And that leads to the next point. Mission. After call to prayer, Jesus then puts into action of how to multiply workers. And that's really the whole of chapter 10. We're only going to skim the surface. Chapter 10, verse 1, he called his 12 disciples to him, gave them authority to drive out evil spirits, to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles and so on. Now, up till then, Jesus was one man doing all the harvesting. Now he sends 12 men and gives them authority to do what he's been doing. Now, if you looked at this in CG, you will have talked about this already because we do need to be careful, don't we, how we apply this. Now, some people will think everything that Jesus says here in Matthew 10, you need to take at face value. So what they've been told to do, we're told to do. What authority they have, we have. Jesus raised the dead, healed every disease. We should expect to do exactly the same. Now, I've got problems with that. And hopefully you see a little bit of problem with that. Because if you look carefully, there are instructions here that Matthew and Jesus intends only to specifically apply to the 12 and their mission at the time. Um, And we've got to ask the question, how do we know what's for the 12 and what's for us? Well, that's what we're going to look at in a moment. So firstly, for the 12. Um, 12 is not a random number, okay? 12 is not a random number. Jesus had 12 disciples Because 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. There were 12 tribes. And so there was a very symbolic group here. These 12 are the new Israel, the heads of the new Israel, the people of God. They were apostles in a way that no others were. Also, you'll see that many of Jesus' instructions in these verses were really unique to them at the time. And these instructions, Jesus will change after he goes to the cross, rises again, goes up to heaven and pours out his Holy Spirit. See, verses 5 to 10 especially are those kind of verses, very specific. Look, verse 5, he says, don't go to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, don't even go to Samaria, only go to Israel. That's pretty specific, right? In verses 9 to 10, what does Jesus say? He says, look, there's no time to take extras like clothing or money. Your mission is to be fast and furious, okay? These Jewish towns, by the way, he also says in those verses, they only get one chance. They welcome you, you stay. They don't welcome you, you leave. Only one shot. Now, can you imagine we take those principles that Jesus says here, so those instructions, and we apply them directly to mission today? Can you imagine that? You would not have any mission outside of mission to Israel, and you would tell your missionary, sorry, there's no support for you, you don't need it. Don't even take spare clothes. All right? Oh, and if you preach the gospel once to that people and they reject you, get on out of there, go to the next one. Like, we, we don't do that, do we? You see, see what's happening here? There's something very specific. There are things here that are only replied to the 12 at the time in their mission. Because here in the history of salvation, in the big picture of what God is doing, and if you're particularly familiar with Old Testament themes and prophecies, then you'll know that something specific was happening at this time. That God's remaining people, His people, the remnant, it's also called, that Israel that was left after the exile, well, that faithful new Israel had to now be reformed. And it's only after they're formed and gathered that the gospel message, salvation, can go out through them to the nations, to the Samaritans and the Gentiles. And that's what Jesus was doing, by the way, in his earthly ministry. He mainly focused on the towns of Israel, going around, healing, preaching to them, so that he would gather the 
the, the core of his new Israel people, and only after his death and resurrection is pouring out of the Holy Spirit, once they're restored, would the gospel go out to the nations. There is an order of salvation. And so his 12 apostles, the head of the new Israel, they were right then supposed to replicate and multiply his ministry. And they only had a limited amount of time to do it before Jesus goes to the cross. You see, this was a very time-specific thing. So in light of this, I hope you see we're not to take all of these instructions, especially verses 5 to 10, as a command for all of Jesus' disciples at all times. You get what I'm saying here? All right? But there are things, of course, that we can draw, principles that do apply to us all. And I want to just finish by talking about the nature, the motivation, and the result as a way for us to see what Jesus might be saying to his followers today. So the firstly, the nature. Jesus' ministry was word and action, or word and deed. Right? He preached the gospel, and he demonstrated the gospel. Gospel just means good news. He demonstrated that it was good news by doing good things, healing, acts of mercy, And he's calling the 12 to do the same. But here's the thing. He also calls us to do the same, right? The nature of our mission is word and deed. Now, the details are going to differ, especially when when we're talking about the authority to do the miraculous, all right? Now, by the way, I do believe in miracles. I do believe in healings and exorcisms. I'm not denying that that all happens. But I want you to notice that when he gave his 12 the authority, he gave them the authority to do exactly what he did to the extent that he did. I don't think that that's supposed to be true of all time. Though miracles and healings still exist, he was telling them that they had authority to heal, verse 1, every disease and sickness because he healed every disease and sickness jesus never failed to heal a single sickness and his apostles at that time were given the authority to do exactly the same the rest of the new testament though it talks about supernatural healing and praying for healing it does not promise that all sickness would be healed all dead people raised Every sickness without exception. You know you see what I mean? All right? So there was something very specific about exactly copying Jesus in terms of the deeds that were only applicable to the 12. But I want to say the principle is the same, isn't it? And the principle is, again, word and deed. They go hand in hand. When we speak the good news, we need to be willing for that good news to be demonstrated in our actions. Now, that could mean healing deliverance, miracles, but it also at least means compassion and love and care and genuine concern. So take a step back. Let's think about the, if you're a follower of Jesus, just think about the unbelievers in your life, right? The ones that you have a decent amount of contact with, whether it's school or uni or work or neighborhoods. What what do you think is holding them back from meeting Jesus? What's actually holding them back? Is it that they need more words? Or is it that they need more deeds? All right, ask yourself that question. Is it, and it's going to be different for different people, is it that they need more words or is it that they need more deeds? Because for some people, it actually is, they need more words in that they, they see you, they like you, they, they see that your life is different, but unless you open your mouth to say something about 
who you believe, why you believe, or even to say, hey, come with me to church and let me show you, or someone else can explain to you, right? All the good deeds that they see isn't going to translate into saving faith in Jesus. You know what I mean? Do they need more words? Is that what you've got to do? Just kind of take the courage to, to just say something, to invite them. But also it could mean, or it could mean for some people that they actually have enough of the words. They know you're a Christian. You've tried to share the good news of Jesus with them, but they just haven't seen enough deeds. Right? It's very easy to, to feel like they're just being treated like a project. Right? You try and get them along to church or Alpha, and if they say no, you kind of just distance yourself away. Or you... What they need is close contact, be able to see in action true Christian love, true Christian community, true Christian care. Do they need more words or do they need more deeds? Have a think about that with the people around you, because I suspect it's going to be different for different people. What about the motivation, the second thing? The second thing that we can take and apply. Well, verse 8 says it, doesn't it? Jesus says, freely you've received, freely give. All right, well, literally he says, you received it as a gift, now give it as a gift. All right, you received it as a gift, now give it, pay it forward, pass it on. You see, what's going to cause you to have gut-wrenching compassion like Jesus for the lost? What's going to cause you to pray on your knees to God for him to save them and to send workers to save them and then even be willing to go yourself What's going to cause you to do all that? Well, it's only when you understand, first and foremost, that you also was a miserable sinner in need of God's compassion and that God gave that to you free of charge. You see, it has to come from a place of experience. It has to come because you've tasted the compassion of Jesus and you know what grace feels like because you can only give what you've received. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you've received the greatest gift ever, right? And no cost to yourself and everything borne by God. See, Jesus' gut-wrenching compassion would take him all the way to the cross, have spikes driven through his wrist and feet to bear your sin and mine. So much so that on the cross, he still cried out with compassion. Remember his words on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they're doing. That is what we received, followers of Jesus. And I wonder if you've experienced that firsthand. It's not good enough just to know it from a distance. You've got to have experienced that in your life. If you haven't yet, then please come and chat to me, Pastor Marshall. We'd love to be able to tell you more. And maybe when Alpha comes around again in a few months' time, you can come along to that. But if you have experienced that, then here's the question. Right? How can you hold it back? Like if grace has really flooded into your life, you can't let it stagnate and turn into a dirty cesspool, right? It's like water. It's got to flow in. It's got to flow out and overflow to others. Now, what that's going to look like is going to be different for everyone, but it should be radical for everyone. doesn't matter how it looks, how different it is. It's got to be radical. I mean, some people will, and I'm hoping amongst us, especially this age and stage of life that a lot of you in, the opportunities and resources that you've got, Maybe on you needs to be that call and is that call to give up your jobs and careers. Some of you to become pastors and church planters or go overseas and become mission partners. Is that you? Or if you're interested in finding out if that's you, later on over the October Labor Day long weekend, we're actually going to be hosting um, what's called an MTS recruit 
training conference. Uh, we're going to be one of the local hubs that are going to host it here, and we'd love for you to find out more and come along to that. But a lot of you, perhaps the majority of you, may be called to stay where you are in your jobs and to be salt and light and workers of the harvest field in the places you live and work. Now, that is not a lesser thing. That is sometimes a much harder thing, especially given what our secular world is like now. To stand up for Jesus in word and deed in schools now, to take a, take a stand for Jesus and his values in school now is going to cost you, right? It's going to cost you. But unless you take a stand and you speak about how wonderful Jesus is, even though his values are so contrary to the world, how are they going to see an alternative? How are they going to see the beauty of the gospel? It's hard. So don't think that staying is a cop-out. Staying is radical. Staying is not going to be comfortable if you're going to live with that motivation of letting God's grace overflow through you to others. Last of all, and I don't have time for much of this, verses 11 to 15 The principle there is that Jesus' disciples will face the same kind of divided response that Jesus faced. And and if you read the rest of chapter 10, which we don't have time to do, you'll see even more of that. But I just want to note in passing, look at verse 15, the last verse we read. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it'll be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for the town, the town that's rejected Jesus' disciples as they went and preached to them. Right, Sodom and Gomorrah are the classic, wicked to the extreme, destroyed by fire towns in the book of Genesis. But it's way worse to reject Jesus and his messengers. Now, why will it be worse to do that? Well, the principle is this. The more you know, the more you'll be judged. You see how fair God is? The more you know, the more you'll be judged. And so I have to speak a word to those who are here. Maybe you attend church most weeks, some weeks. Maybe you even grew up at church, youth group. But you're kind of neither here nor there in terms of your own heart's commitment. You're not really searching. Maybe you're just here because you feel you have to come. Parents drag you. Or you're just here because you like the vibe, you like the friendships. But in your heart of hearts, you're not really doing anything about Jesus. You're not doing anything about Jesus' call on your life to be a follower rather than just be a crowd. If this is you, I beg you, please take these words seriously. Because the more you know, the more you'll be judged. Remember that God's compassion for this world has a time limit. There's been a lot of gun violence in the U.S. again and all the talk again about guns and gun control and the Second Amendment and all that. But those of us who've been alive in Australia remember that prior to the 90s, Australia had much more lax gun laws. And then a terrible shooting happened in Port Arthur And then all of a sudden, the government took action, and it was great that they did. But what they did was they declared 
a gun amnesty. You know what an amnesty is? Amnesty is a, a period of time, a limited period of time, where people, for a gun amnesty, where people could give back or give to the government, get rid of illegal firearms. And the government will ask no questions. There'll be no charges led if you've got illegal firearms, whatever the kind, the government will take it off your hands and you won't get charged, you won't, nothing will happen to you. That's the amnesty. And so the government ended up um, clamp, clamping down on gun laws and illegal gun ownership through the amnesty. But here's the thing, it was only for a period of time. Because after that time, that amnesty period finished, if you were caught with an illegal firearm, you could get in a lot of trouble, you see? I want you to know that the time that we're in, until Jesus returns, is God's amnesty. See, God has given the world His most precious Son and the good news of how you can be saved through Him. And this is the time we are in now, amnesty. You could come back to God. No sin would be unforgiven. Nothing you've done will be counted against you because Jesus already paid. But you need to know that time is limited. When you die or when Jesus returns, that's when it ends. And when Jesus returns or you die and face Him, if you've still rejected Him, it has grave consequences. Because if you reject Him with eyes open, if you reject him having heard, having seen, having had opportunities, it means even more judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah. Is that supposed to terrify us? Yes. It's supposed to be scary. Because the more you know, the more you'll be judged. So don't take for granted the compassion of God. If you're one of those people, you just kind of stayed at a distance, uncommitted, and you're here or listening online, please, I beg you, do something about it while there's still time. And will you, the rest of you, who have taken action, who have decided to follow Jesus, who do love the Lord, will you look out at the world around you, where you study, where you work, where you live, look out at the billions of people who face a Christless eternity, and understand that this is the time of harvest and amnesty. And God is calling you to feel what He feels. Pray as He calls you to pray. And He's calling you in your own way to go. Wherever you are, be a missionary for them. Will you do that? Let's get the band up. We're going to sing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, stir us with a deep compassion for those who don't yet know you and for those who don't have an opportunity to hear about you. We pray, Lord of the harvest, that you will send more workers, that you will send us, whether it's staying where we are, whether it's going close or far away somewhere else. Don't allow us, Lord, to just be comfortable. Because the time is coming when the king will return, the harvest will have been gathered, the new creation will come, and it will be too late for those who haven't trusted in you. Help us not to be that and help us to do everything we can to help as many people as we can come to know you. Amen.